everybody doing? My name is Christian Wagner and I'm the Militant Thomist. So we will be doing another debate review today. It's going to be another one of Jake's debates. And the reason I like doing Jake's debates is because I think he's the brightest um, Muslim debater on the Trinity that I've ever seen. Maybe eventually we'll get into some of his incarnation debates, but I haven't just, I haven't really found any other good Muslims. It's mostly uh, really low-level argumentation that they're using so uh i like i like the way that jake debates so this one is going to be does the trinity make any sense between chris date and muslim metaphysician okay oh and mr thomism where are you buffering buffering i'm super late all the time (laughs) most of it is one plus one plus one equals one (laughs) Yeah. What if it is not one plus one plus one, but one times one times one? There you go. Okay. So let me, before I share my screen, don't forget to go to christianbwagner.com slash shop. And I finally brought it on stream. The Militant Thomist Mug, christianbwagner.com slash shop, and you can get books there, and then also patreon.com slash militantthomist, and I haven't mentioned this in a while, but you know, you know what would really help with debating Muslims? Learning New Testament Greek. So, go to fluentgreeknt.com and use the code militant. And get a bunch of percentage points off. I can't remember how much percentage points. I think 20% off. So do that. Too scared to review Gideon's 24, <laughs> 24 response to the domestic theses, Mr. Wagner. Are you like... <laughs> that was the most dyslexic sentence I've ever read. Uh, um... I'm not too scared. I did. I literally just did an article against something he said in there. I'm not too scared. I'm not scared, dude. Not a scaredy cat. I could beat him any day, but I won't debate him. But it's not because I'm not scared. You seem like the person to ask, where can I find PDFs of scholastic and reformed works on the sacraments? Mm, I don't want to mention any illegal activities on stream 
So go to my Discord, PDF posting, and ask there. And I'm sure you'll be able to find whatever you're looking for. Okay, so I will, now that we've done all that, probably only be able to stay for like an hour and a half. So I'll do part one and part two. And I'm going to finish Jay's review eventually. It's just I wasn't feeling, I was feeling Trinity today, you know? I was plugging your channel of Reason and Theology last night. You are welcome. Absolute Giga Chad. You are an absolute Giga Chad. Okay, let's see this. Of course, we're going to have a stupid ad before it begins. You know what I did for you guys? I was sitting on the couch, eating my potato wedges that my wife had just made me, about to drink my coffee from my Militant Thomas mug, debating a Muslim about the Trinity in the Discord chat, and I realized that I had to do a live stream. So I laid that all besides me, and I went to my room to start the live stream. That's what I did. I'm such a stand-up guy, aren't I? It's a free way to combat climate change. Would you do me a favor and not skip this ad? Because it's fake and gay. I'm Shelby. I'm a sustainability expert. I have a degree in environmental science. Wow. And I've been using the tree planting version of Google, known as Ecosia, for over five years. You see, search engines like Google make money from the ads that you see in their search results. But Ecosia uses their profits to plant trees. By wow. doing this, Ecosia has planted over 140 million trees all over the world wow. in biodiversity hotspots. And those wow. biodiversity hotspots biodiversity. 30. When, when race diversity isn't enough for you, so you need biodiversity. Countries. As a sustainability expert, I'm always on the lookout for the next greenwashing wow. scheme. But I never have to worry about that with Ecosia because wow. they publish their financial reports. Whoa. So you can see exactly how much money they're making and where it's being spent. And just when you think Ecosia can't get any better, it does because Ecosia is a privacy-friendly search engine. They don't create user profiles. They keep all of your searches anonymous and they never sell your data. Very cool. So why are you still watching this ad? Download Ecosia today and start combating climate change by planting trees. No. You know what? Now that I heard that, I kind of want to go outside and cut down a few trees. Welcome to Explain International. You're joining me, Samuel Mason, today for this uh, exciting debate between Chris Day oh, my potato and wedges Jake, are cold the Muslim now. metaphysician. Uh, I'll be the moderator for today and uh, in the place of Santi, uh, who has uh, put me in charge of this. I hope I don't mess up too much. Uh, big welcome to all of you who have been waiting so patiently in the live chat. Uh, we're really glad to have you with us. And if you're new to this channel, highly encourage that you hit the subscribe button, the red button right at the bottom there, and hit the notification. <laughs> Taste is starting the Lofton v. Wagner debate early. I am not, I would, I don't think I would ever, uh, I don't think I would ever uh, debate Lofton. Belt. Uh, if you want to be notified about uh, notified of uh, future debates. So with that, let me jump straight into it. The title of our debate today is Does the Trinity Make Sense? So that's the orthodox uh, position on the Trinity. Makes sense. And uh, let me begin by introducing yes, Chris Date. In fact, why not? Uh, let me just ask Chris, uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself, your work that you do, uh, just tell us a bit about yourself and what you've been up to lately. Sure. And, and first of all, let me just say thanks to you for uh, moderating and hosting this. And also, I want to say thanks to Jake. And I want to do that now just because I'm so my 15 minute opening is so full, I won't have time to thank him at the beginning. So, Jake, thank you for I would not. Oh, I should probably turn off my 
my mic while I chew. But I would not thank my opponent beginning the debate. You thank him at the end of the debate. The big you need to strike fear in your opponent at the beginning of the debate. I'm just gonna go up there and say, I am the militant Thomas. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Father Reginald Marie Gergou Lagrange, pray for us. And then just get at it. Like, no, don't give him a second. Don't even give him a second. Uh, for participating in this, this is much more your wheelhouse than mine. So your willingness to uh, to engage with me in debate is, is much appreciated. Um, I am most known for my work on the topic of hell and conditional immortality um, with the Ministry of Rethinking Hell. Um, and in, in, oh, in you know he's going to be trash now. Books and journal articles, and I speak at conferences, and I debate, and so forth. Um, but uh, beyond... <laughs> doesn't believe in eternal conscious torment. Oh man, he's going to lose this debate so hard. Beyond my work on hell, I'm also known for my defense of reformed theology, Calvinism, Babylonism, and so forth. What? Um, but a few years oh, ago, oh no, I he's began, going um, focusing so on the topics, the topic of incarnation and Trinity as well, um, with my debate versus Dale Tuggy a few years ago, which culminated in a book uh, debate. And so I'm really excited to now take that to the next level and debate the topic of the Trinity as we're doing here today. I'll. I'll hoping to come out uh, <laughs> looking good. We'll see how we'll see how well that turns out. And then lastly, I'll just say I'm an adjunct professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Um, people who watch Trinity Radio and are familiar with Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett, they're the leadership of Trinity Seminary, and I have the honor of being a teacher there. Um, if viewers are interested in getting a higher Christian education, um, but without, they don't have the time or the rigid, you know, time requirements of a traditional brick and mortar institution type experience then go to trinitysem.edu that's sem is short for seminary trinitysem.edu wait sem is short for seminary that's crazy have you as a student so uh yeah i'll leave it at that thanks so much chris oh wait and, he's uh, a molinist i debate also him glad too. to have for the very first time on our channel jake the muslim metaphysician uh Based. thank you for coming on jake and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to lately you know, I don't want your guys' yeah, life so stories. I'm a Muslim. I'm a I'm sorry. convert. Uh, I'm sorry, Jake. But I, I like Chris to tell his life story, but I just don't want to hear everybody's life stories. Much, Jake and uh, also, uh, we really look forward to hearing oh, from those of you in one the live chat as well. Speed. Those of you watching this live, you can participate in the Q&A at the end of this uh, debate. Uh, questions that, uh, if you could uh, kindly indicate who your question is to, that would make it a lot easier for us uh, to pick out the questions and to address them to the respective panelists. With that, let me begin by just introducing the format of the debate. We'll begin with an opening 15 minutes each, beginning with Chris, uh, who will be taking the affirmative position, defending uh, the... Are you guys ever going to get sense, to or rather the position, then the 20 minutes rebuttal. When, uh, we'll go over to you, those of you watching this. Uh, uh, Chris, to make your opening statement. I'll, kind of, I'll, give, an, I'll, I'll, I'll give a notification uh, once we're about one minute away and about 30 seconds away. Uh, but uh, yeah, the time starts uh, at your first word, Chris. Great. So I want to make very clear from the outset just what it is we're debating, because this is something of a unique debate. Um, what we're debating is whether it's possible for a doctrine of the Trinity to be both orthodox and logically coherent. So what I'm going to do is offer what I think is a plausible model of the Trinity that is both orthodox and logically coherent. It'll be something like a defense rather than a theodicy when answering. Oh, my gosh. A possible model. Oh, you know, you already know Chris Date's going to be trash. You already know. It, like, th there's no doubt in my mind that I'm about to go through another two and a half hours of pain, just like I did with James White. 
the problem of evil, which simply means that it needn't be an accurate model. It doesn't have to accurately represent the way the Trinity actually works. If the model I offer succeeds at being both orthodox and coherent, then Christianity wins the debate, even if my model it doesn't prove in the end to be the right one. So just what is orthodox Trinitarianism? Well, I want to offer that orthodox Trinitarianism is conciliar Trinitarianism, by which I mean the, er the, the, the affirmations of the early ecumenical councils. So collectively, they affirm the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. They're eternally distinct and personal. They share one divine substance. And although the following two are a little bit disputable, I'm going to concede them for the purpose of this debate and add they aren't parts of a divisible substance. And the Son and the Spirit are metaphysically contingent on the Father and the Spirit possibly on the Son, which we'll get to a little bit later. So I want to offer a simple summary of my position, and then I'll explicate the concepts involved. I'm going to argue that God is firstly one being. Secondly, that that being is a simple mental substance, a mind. Thirdly, that that mind exists eternally as three persons, by which I mean one mind from the vantages of three properties. Fourthly, those persons are individuated only by those properties and the relations between them. And fifthly, the second and third persons are contingent metaphysically on the first, and again, the third possibly on the second. So this is a summary of the model that I'm going to be um, explicating now. So this model base is based on three related but distinct concepts. So the concept of self, which I'm defining as the trope or property instance of mindness that is reflexive or pre-reflective ownership and agency over experience and being. And then there's being, which I'm defining here as the substance, or in the case of humans, composite of substances, of which self is a property. And then person, I'm defining as a self along with its being from its unique first personal perspective. Now, to help understand, uh, explain what I mean by some of these concepts, I want to turn... Oh, no, this is going to be so bad. This is going to be so bad. I can already... Oh, my. Oh, my. Yeah, this is going to be terrible. A self along with being from its unique first personal perspective. Why? Like, bro, what is... What is so hard about using Boethius's definition? Why you got to come up with all these new definitions, huh? What? Like, why is... Why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult? I'm I'm about to I'm about to what I'm so triggered right now. I'm so triggered right now. What what is this? What is this? First personal perspective. Now, to help understand, uh, explain what I mean by some of these concepts, I want to turn to an analogy uh, from a game I like to play called PUBG. This is the same sequence of events in that game from two vantage points. In the foreground is third-person perspective, and I'm treating this as analogous to what it's like to observe a human being from, from without, from, from as an external um, observer. And then here is the same sequence of events overlaid uh, beneath it from the first-person perspective. And I'm treating this as analogous, this visual field of the avatar, I'm treating it as analogous to our experiential field, the field of experience, uh, mind. And I'm going to use it to illustrate the concept of self. So if we pause this sequence of events where the avatar is punching and you can see your, your avatar's punch in your visual field, this is analogous to being. Again, the composite of all substances, properties, etc. that constitute an individual being. This is sometimes called the thick subject of conscious experience, which means the whole organism, the whole being that is the subject of experience. This part of you that you see in your visual field, that's what's called phenomenal self. It's one's own being as the object of one's own conscious perception. Why? This is the self I've been talking about, though it, will be, uh, though it could be relevant later. Why? And lastly, this is the kind of self I'm talking about. It's what is known in the literature as metaphysical self or self as subject, minimal self. There's a variety of terms for it. But notice it's the, the hand Why? Here is at you, the person viewing the visual field, meaning it's the first personal perspective of experience. Uh, philo philosophers of mind, neuroscientists, psychologists, psychiatrists use this kind of language. Uh, Matthias Wozniak, the self as subject of experience. It's rooted in metaphysics. Uh, Timothy Joseph Lane um, notes there's a lot of cognates for this, for meanness, selfhood, ipsaity. There's a bunch of terms. Uh, Giovanni Stangolini in Philosophy, Psychiatry, and Psychology says it's the minimal self, pre-reflective self-awareness, and he notes that it includes this sense of agency and ownership of experience. Sean Gass Who cares what all these retarded modern philosophers think? Like, I couldn't possibly get the why. I'm triggered. I, I need a minute. I need a minute. I need to check through the chat. <laughs> K 
can't wait to see Jake the Muslim metaphysician wearing his hat debating MD with his autism hat. Oh man. Oh my. Isn't Lofton a Molinist? I don't know. But if he is, I'd debate him on that. Oh gosh. PUBG analogy to illustrate self consciousness. Oh, this is so. Wait, Astrofire. You're, bro, you're in the chat. Look at that. You're in the chat right here. Hakmagui, what school of theology do you adhere to? Look, dude, you're in the chat right. That's kind of trippy. You're in both chats. Crazy. Prediction, Chris State loses. <laughs> Prediction, both of them are going to lose. Prediction, we the audience lose. Prediction, Mr. Thomist wins. Based. Oh no, first rethinking hell. Now he wants to touch the Trinity. Rethinking Trinity upcoming. Does Jake only debate Protestants? Um, Trying to think. I Yes, I think I've only seen him debate protestants there might have been one orthodox guy i think i i can't remember but yeah i think it's only protestants why don't you reach out to jake for a debate he needs to return to catholicism well we uh we, we kind of had a little bit of a of a um chat a while ago and then he wants yeah What is the difference between a minor virtual distinction and a virtual distinction? You left me on red on Discord. Okay, where is it? Um, I know I sent that Woodbury PDF. Woodbury PDF. Where is it? There it is. Yeah, you guys are going off in the in the chat. Let's see. This is gonna be annoying. There it is. On this point, see number 885. I'm trying to find a good definition. There it is. Okay. Boom. Okay. So we'll, I'll just go over all the distinctions. So you guys can kind of understand my language. Stop screen. Okay, share screen. This is Woodbury, who he was, I think, an American philosopher. But fear not, because he was a student of Lagrange, actually. So, so let's get it. Oh, he make, gives us this nice little chart. So, there are three distinctions to wit. Of name only, as between... <laughs> oh, oh, I thought that said homie. Between man and homie, there are... Uh, homme, I think that's like French for man or something. So, that is of name only. 
And there's a distinction of name and of concept as between man and animal. So these are both mental distinctions. And then of name, of concept, and of thing. So man and horse. This distinction is real. So a real distinction can be twofold. Either a real, real distinction, when it is between two realities, neither of which is related to the other, as a mere manner of it, or in other words, which are not related to each other as a manner mannerizing or something mannerized. Thus, there's a real, real distinction between man and horse. A real modal. Wait, I have to make, did I unmute myself? Yes, I did. A real modal distinction. When it is between two realities, one of which is related to the other as a mere manner, whereby the other is mannerized, so as to be had thus or thus. Or in other words, which are related to each other as mannerized, mannerizing, and something mannerized. Thus, a curved line and its curvedness are really modally distinguished. Okay. Hope that made sense. Okay. Now, conceptual distinction. Conceptual distinction arises inasmuch as the same thing is conceived by diverse objective concepts, which are referred to each other by the intellect as of the same thing. Accordingly, a conceptual distinction is lack of identity between two or many objective concepts of the same thing, inasmuch as these concepts are intrinsically diverse. Notice, inasmuch as these concepts are intrinsically diverse. Intrinsically diverse. So there's a fundamentum in re. So there's a fundamental, um, there, there's a foundation in the thing. There's a foundation in the thing for this conceptual distinction of two objective concepts. Now, because this is a distinction between objective concepts, it depends upon the thing which is represented by the comprehension of the concept. However, the distinction is indeed not found in the thing, for then it would be a real distinction. However, the thing offers a foundation. So there's a difference between a foundation for diversity of concepts inasmuch as it is too perfect to be exhausted by one of our intellect's concepts. For our intellect is the most imperfect of all intellects. Same with me. Thus, because our intellect cannot, by one single concept, perfectly understand that thing which is man, it must, from that same thing, abstract diverse concepts, namely the concept of substance, body, living, animal, rational, and so forth. Notice. The distinction is not found in the thing, but it offers a foundation for the diversity of concept. Okay. So, let's keep going. Accordingly, in order to prevent a conceptual distinction from being confused with a nominal distinction, remember nominal distinction is a distinction of name only, or in other words, with an intrinsically unbased, unbased mental distinction, a conceptual distinction is called a based. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's called a based mental distinction or a mental distinction with intrinsic a foundation in the thing. However, in order to prevent it from being confused with a real distinction, which given that it is in the thing has an actual foundation in reality, 
A conceptual distinction is also called a mental distinction which a virtual with a virtual foundation in the thing. The term virtual here means without distinction in the thing, but supposing in the thing a perfection which has the virtue or power of engendering many distinct concepts of this thing. Now, this virtual foundation in the thing indeed is not an actual distinction. For if there is a real distinction in the real, then we have a real distinction, not a conceptual one. However, it is in the perfection of the thing as the, this perfection is the foundation or reason why there is an actual distinction of concepts in the intellect. Accordingly, this virtual foundation in the thing is called a virtual distinction. For a virtual distinction is in the intrinsic eminence of a thing, whereby being the same in itself, it offers through a simple containment of perfections, the intellect, a foundation for distinguishing one of the perfections from another. Okay. Okay, here you go. I think that's enough to have us understand what a... Uh, what a virtual distinction is. Now, what's the difference between a major virtual distinction and a minor virtual distinction? I'm glad you asked. So, A, inasmuch as one logically inferior concept, that is man, adds something objective, for example, rational, to another superior concept, animal, without this added objective content, being actually contained in the logically superior content. Thus, as regards what is added, the two concepts differ as actual and potential. As man is actually rational, whereas animal is potentially rational. Therefore, this kind of conceptual distinction is based on objective precision, whereby a thing is conceived inadequately. That is not totally as regards all its predicates, but rather with the omission of some of them. Such a conceptual distinction is called a major conceptual distinction or a major based mental distinction. And indeed, it has a major virtual foundation in the thing and corresponds to a major virtual intrinsic distinction as an actual corresponds to a virtual. Okay, that is a major distinction. One of the concepts actualizes a potency in the other concept okay or so this is what a minor virtual distinction is going to be inasmuch as one concept explicates or distinctly represents something which only implicitly or confusedly though actually is contained in the other concept so that the concepts differ as explicit and implicit, or as distinct and confused. This kind of distinction exists between that which is defined and its definition, between man and rational animal. So between man and rational animal is a minor virtual distinction, just as between God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a minor virtual distinction. And between a metaphysical essence and, a meta and metaphysical properties. 
as between man and able to talk, between being and the transcendental properties of being, and between God's metaphysical essence and the divine attributes, which will be made clear below, and between metaphysical properties themselves. Therefore, this distinction is based not upon objective precision, but upon formal precision. Inasmuch as each of these two concepts, e.g. man and rational animal, attains the thing according to all its predicates. Though one of them, man, attains them only confusedly and represents them implicitly, whereas the other, rational animal, attains them distinctively and represents them explicitly. This kind of conceptual distinction is called a minor conceptual distinction or a minor based mental distinction. And indeed, it has a minor virtual foundation in the thing and corresponds to a minor virtual intrinsic distinction as an actual corresponds to a virtual. Okay, there you go. There is your way too long answer. Oh, was that like 15 minutes that I spent answering that? Okay, I need to... Chris Day just lost by bringing PUBG to a Trinitarian debate. Mm. Oh, cold coffee. But remember to get the Militant Thomas mug. Let me see if there's any other questions in the chat. Aquinas proofing the Trinity by playing Minecraft. How can you understand him at this speed? Oh, I should probably turn the speed down. I, I forgot you guys have, have small brains, unlike my big, big brain. I could understand him at five times speed. Oh, you were a diorite back then. Ooh, we'll have to. Too broke for super chat. <laughs> I knew. Wait, he debated Louis Dizon? I had no idea. Yes, that's the that's the Eastern Orthodox guy I was thinking of. Yeah, but his model isn't Thomistic. Which is why... What? Ugh. Oh, he was... He was Australian. Ah. They both believe essence doesn't have a saiety. I'm gonna call his bishop. Can get Chad move. Be like bishop. Discipline... Discipline the people to follow the angelic doctor. Oh, I found the way you spoke about Latin theology to be pretty cringe. Branson basically thinks that Latin theology is modalism. Why are these people just retarded? Like, I, I have an easy solution for all of your Trinitarian problems. All of you modern Trinitarians out there. Don't be a retard. It's that easy. Just stop being retarded. The difference between East and West on tritiology pertains exclusively to the filioque way, not whether the Son is true God. That's just online quackery. True. That's true. <laughs> the cringe formal distinction versus major based mental distinction. Yeah, I think honestly, a formal distinction is literally just 
a major virtual distinction. I've told I've told Gideon that before. I was like, dude, the only the only thing a a formal distinction is is just a is just a major virtual distinction. That's all it is. Okay, one point two five. Does Roman Catholicism have a concept of the noose? Well, yeah, we do. Like I was, I was thinking about it. And basically, the way Dyer represents us is like pure Pelagians. Like we just, we just think that we have to reason our way up to the to the first cause, and that's how we get saved. Gets so that's so stupid. Okay, you're one. Okay, I'm gonna set it back to one point two five speed, since you guys think it's too fast. Okay, we're t- how how long into the stream are we? Thirty minutes into the stream, we're only ten minutes in. I guess it's not too bad. Oh yeah, in my sparkling water today, Spindrift sparkling water with real squeezed fruit juice made with brewed tea and real lemon. So we'll see how that is. Sounds this sounds so retarded. This is like really retarded. Why? Why is he saying that he's a conciliarist when he's like, I, I'm such a conciliarist, guys. I follow the conciliar models of the church, and then just, and then just ignores all of the definitions of the terms that he uses that is actually given by the conciliar model of the church. Come on now, you're not tricking anyone, tritheist. Honestly, it's really I don't know whether he's from what he said because he's what he said about um the contingency of the sun 
on the Father and the contingency of the Spirit on the Father and the Son is just wrong. That's that's not correct. Um, I feel like there's a section in the STS about this, but yeah, that's just not right. And it's hard to explain, so I won't explain it now, but yeah, he's just wrong about that. But it's hard to tell whether he's an Arian, whether he is a modalist, or whether he's a tritheist. Like, I don't know which heresy he's falling into. That's how bad this is. He, he's, I think he's like simultaneously, like, this is like a trinity of heresy. It's one heresy, but it's subsisting in three heresies. I, I, I don't know how bad he is. Bro, procession is in a contingency relationship. <laughs> Did I forget to put it back up? <laughs> Woo. <laughs> oh man. That was, that was, that's probably the dumbest thing I've ever done. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to chill. I'm trying to chill. I know, I know I didn't share my screen. I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just forgot. You guys, you guys will just miss that part of the debate. Sam Shamoon. What do you mean, Sam Shamoon? Jake Lund. We can't see the debate. Oh, thanks for the super chat. You were awkwardly chilling in the background. <laughs> Base retard moment. Oh man. Okay, I'm not. I'm not rewatching that part of the debate. You, you guys, you guys can just understand how bad it was for my commentary. Ooh, look. Ooh. 
multiplicity. These come up a lot in um, at least the debates I've seen with Jake, and I think it's right that they come up, uh, but just to what extent um, they are critical is, is up for debate, I think. Because I want to argue that the creeds don't actually insist that each divine person has full-orbed aseity. Quite the contrary, I think Jake would agree that the creeds don't insist each divine person has full-orbed aseity. I do think they affirm that the Father observe, or exhibits full-orbed aseity, and my model accounts for that. They affirm the Son and the Spirit don't, because they're contingent on the Father, but my model has the Son and Spirit metaphysically necessary and... <laughs> <laughs> did did this dude just say they are contingent but they are necessary? Anyway, they must exist in all possible worlds because the father necessarily, but eternally, begets the son and spirates the spirit in all possible worlds. So he is contingent, but the son and the spirit are contingent, but they're also necessary in another sense. As for simplicity, the creeds don't seem to insist that God exhibits full orb simplicity. Um, now, my model does the, the the key. The key, if there's any issues with your trinitary model, is to just deny. <laughs> just, just deny the major premise, dude. Just just deny, like orthodox doctrine of God. That that's that's the key to it. To have your crackhead trinitarian model. They're like this is. I think this is the most crackhead trinit. Like. Honestly, Sibelianism makes more sense than this, dude. Uh, Arius. Arius' little song about there's a time when the sun was not. That makes more sense than this dude's model. To maintain that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each the entire undivided divine substance, thereby fulfilling the creeds. But even if full-orb simplicity is to be accepted, the kind that the most you know, maximally reformed people might affirm, it nevertheless logically requires the distinction I've offered between being and self, because experience, which is being, necessarily entails there being an experiencer, this self I'm talking about. And because even that distinction must exist even within a fully full-orbed simple being, therefore I don't see any reason why the same distinction between being and three selves couldn't um, subsist therein now in the last few minutes i have i want to offer some reasons why oh is this going to get even more retarded trinity from general revelation oh no this is going to get even worse shamoon oh sam shamoon oh how you doing i didn't know you watched the most base thomist ever you gotta bring me on sometime i think that'd be fun Let's continue. This is about to get even more retarded. I think that um, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is actually achievable through reasoning from general revelation alone. In other words, I part ways with some of my uh, Trinitarian brothers in arguing that you can actually reason to the doctrine of Trinity from general revelation. Um, you can. It's not purely special revelation. And I want to argue this for three reasons. Firstly, divine multiplicity seems to me to solve the problem of one and many. Um, within philosophy, the problem of the one and the many is well known. The problem is, do we ultimatize the one or do we ultimatize the many? Either one is presented with problems, but if God is only one, we have to ultimatize the one. If he's only many, we have to ultimatize the many, and either of those are problematic. But if God is one and many, one being and many persons, well, then in the world in which we exist, both the one and the many have foundational meaning. Ad primum. Literally just read Aristotle. Like, the, the, that isn't that hard. It, it really isn't that hard. Just read Aristotle. He, he lines up all of the categories necessary. This is really sad.
Now, of course, that doesn't that doesn't reason to Trinity. It only reasons to multiplicity. But I would argue, as many Christian philosophers do, that maximal being requires the independent experience of love and unity and relational community, which does require uh, triunity and no more. Richard Swinburne explains this well. He says that love as a supreme good is something that has one person um, giving to another something that is good for them of one's own and vice versa. And that requires two persons. But meaningful love also requires a, uh, two parties at least loving a third party, wanting what's best for and providing what's best for a third party. So if, if the father is um, a maximal being, if he's a maximal person... Literally all the Muslims need to do is just say why. Just why. Why, why can't I conceive of God maximally loving himself? Why? Like, that, that's all they need to do. This is why arguments from general revelation for the Trinity are so dangerous. Because if they just keep asking why, eventually they're going to show that these reasons... While admirable that they're given, aren't sufficient. So, you you need you need special revelation in order to in order for these these reasons to be sufficient. So all they need to do is just keep asking why. They see that um, for general revelation, you're pretty flimsy, um, pretty flimsy uh, foundation, and. It becomes a mockery to the Mohammedans. And he will necessarily give rise to son and spirit um, because that's what's necessary for uh, love to exist. In order to be love, God must be triune. And this is purely reason from general revelation. And then lastly, I want to posit that the, the divine triunity, not just multiplicity, but triunity, best explains the ubiquity of first, second, and third person distinction in human speech and thought. Um, every human culture and language around the world features at its foundation this distinction between first person, second person, and then third person. I, you, him, we, y'all, they. Every human language and culture. Um, every, in fact, you and me are both what are called semantic primes, meaning there's a, there's a word for those things in every single human language. And third person can be constructed from semantic primes. Um, and of course, every single thought that we have entails first, second, and third person distinction. Well, I think this is best explained by the existence within the singular being of God, three persons, so that uh, they can communicate with one another. God is the great communicator. He has a natural talent for and desire to communicate. Well, that's because communication occurs internally within the Godhead. One person speaking to the other in first person speech to a second person about a third person. Bro, what? Basically, his argument is three things exist in nature, therefore Trinity. It, it, it this doesn't follow of necessity. Why? Why are you, you? You only bring these up because there is a usage for arguments from the Trinity, but classically, um, all of the scholastics agree. You only bring these arguments up in order to. Um, hype yourself up hype people up who already believe in the trinity to show that it's coherent and that it is something which is in accord with general revelation but these arguments are not to be used in front of unbelievers and not be to be used to unbelievers because the trinity ultimately for its necessary arguments is dependent on special revelation it's completely misusing these arguments this is really bad. Okay, let me check. MT doesn't get the argument. Date is citing Stelloe. 
on a real love, depending on a trinity, real love shared with the third. Okay, let me... Go back up. Click us back to, there you go. Funny thing is Jake doesn't know the Aristotelian definition of relation, that God doesn't love creation because God has a logical relation to creation. Oh, yeah, God doesn't have a real relation to creation because that would require his dependency on, on creation. Oh, yeah, that's that is rough. Shamoon says, I'm trying to learn from these sophisticated models. Now nah, we only need. We only need. We only need. Where is it? Uh, Cream of Pars is missing. I was doing some late night reading, I guess, somewhere else. Okay, I guess I'll grab this one. Lombard Sentences. You know what? If you just reach out to me, I know like 30 books on the Trinity. If you're not already streaming. Either that or if he is already streaming, somebody go on the streams and tell him. I can give him a list of like 20 books to read on the Trinity. I won't list them off now, but uh, I could. Why don't you debate the Muslim metaphysician? I would. I would. Yeah. And the one in many garbage describing multiplicity of the God. Yeah. St. Thomas is pretty clear. Uh, what's the what's the exact quote? Is that my sumo? No, that's not my sumo. Where is Primo Pars? Oh, it's over there. No, nah, I won't grab it. I'll just use the internet. Um, when it comes to ascribing number to God, because... By one, interestingly enough, um, in Trinitarian theology, we do not mean, let's see where it is. Sorry, I can't do two things at once. Maybe I can. I'll try to say this while I look for it. So by plurality of persons, there it is. Unity and plurality in God. Okay. There you go. Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't. I couldn't say two things at one time. I don't know why I can't. There you go. Okay. Summa Theologiae, um, Prima Pars, question 30, article 3. What all this? The rest of it's really good to read, but this last paragraph is actually pretty good. So it must be observed, nevertheless, that the opposite arguments do not sufficiently prove the point advanced. So the argument is that numeral terms are um, denoting something real in God, which they don't. Although the idea of solitude is excluded by plurality and the plurality of gods by unity, it does not follow that these terms express this signification alone. For blackness is excluded by whiteness. Nevertheless, the term whiteness does not signify the mere exclusion of blackness. Okay. So by three, we are, where is it? What does he say? 
By three, we are excluding solitude. And by one, we are excluding plurality. Okay, I'm going to share my screen again. We might get through his opening statement. I think that's what we'll get through is his opening statement. Let me see. Stolone argues that love cannot be of self. Love is with another, but real love is shared with a third. Love between A, B needs to be shared with C. Why can't I see the person you guys are tagging? This is weird. Okay, we'll get through his opening statement. So I think that the problem of the one and the many, um, the issue of maximum being independently experiencing love and community and divine triunity best explaining the ubiquity of first, second, and third person uh, are reasons for desiring to see that the model that I'm offering here is both orthodox and coherent. Uh, so just to sum up what I've argued, in fact, I'll bring it up on the screen one more time just as a way to close my... Uh, my presentation here. Um, this is the model I'm defending. God is one being, a simple mental substance, a mind, existing eternally as three persons, which is one mind from the vantage points of three properties. Those three persons are individuated only by those properties and the relationships between them. And the second and third of those are contingent on the first and the third possibly on the second. I'd love to see if there's any problem with orthodoxy or logic in this model, but for the time being... Oh, there's some problems with orthodoxy. Don't you worry, buddy. I can't see any. So um, with that, I'll concede the remainder of my time. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh... Okay. So that was the opening statement. We're almost an hour. Should I keep going? Should I not keep going? I kind of want to get through one more opening statement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it's going to be... Uh, nah, nah. I will answer any questions that you guys have. Looking through the chat. Nah, we'll just get through the opening statement. Because we've already seen a lot of Jake's arguments before. Actually, you know what? I should probably go through. You know, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to be schizo and still go through Jake's opening statement. Kind of feel like it. Kind of feeling it right now. Chris, for your opening statement. Now we'll pass the time over to Jake uh, for his 15-minute uh, opening statement. Jake, the time starts at your first word. If you give me just one second, if it's possible for me to share my screen, because I have yes, a sir. PowerPoint as well. One sure second Yeah. All right. So is it there? You got it? Yes, sir. We got it. Okay. Let me just get my timer here. So, oh, sorry just, about just that. Hang on a minute. I'm, I'm, let me see if I can um, just, uh, lay out 
with this, but uh, today, uh, today, are you okay with this screen, Jake? Okay, start now. Do, 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 you, do you want to click uh, to share the screen? Uh, I mean, sorry, to, to actually go on slide presentation? Is that go. better? That's, per that's perfect. Yeah, one second. I can explain international for contacting from me for this debate. I'd also like to thank Chris Date for participating in this debate. Now, for those who are unaware, Chris and I exchange material. Bro, Samuel needs to stop <laughs> messing with the screen. <laughs> for this debate through video prior to today. Chris explained the model of the Trinity that he would be defending in this debate, one in which he believes is both orthodox and logically coherent. I, in turn, offered some feedback on this model in preparation for the debate. I believe that this was quite admirable and honorable of Chris and demonstrates sincerity on his part instead of simply being motivated by point scoring. I hope that Chris feels the same about my response. Hopefully this prior exchange will serve to provide clarity in this debate. My position, to be clear, is that any model of the Trinity proposed will either fail to be coherent, meet the standards of orthodoxy, or both. However, I will be evaluating Chris's model specifically as time does not permit me to stop, start knocking down each and every other possible model individually. With that being said, I will be offering similar criticisms of Chris's model based on what he said in the original video. If adjustments have been made, which I have to say at the outset, it's been clear that they are, so I apologize if some of this is not entirely relevant to Chris's opening. Based on my uh, response or further reflection on Chris's part, then I will do my best to respond accordingly. So the debate before us today is can an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity be logically coherent? Chris is asserting to this yes to this question, and I will be asserting no. First, in order to proceed, we must understand and define some of the key terms in the title. We must understand the criteria for an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity and what logical coherence is. Let me start by explaining what logical coherence is, as the orthodoxy bit will require more analysis. For something to be logically coherent is just to be meaningful and not contradictory. Examples of contradictions include square circles and married bachelors. If any doctrine is contradictory in such a manner, then it is necessarily false, as coherence is a necessary condition for truth such that, if it is incoherent, then it is necessarily false. I believe that Chris and I actually agree on this point. Now, let's look at orthodoxy. In his video, Chris defined orthodoxy as being in conformity with the early ecumenical creeds, such as the Nicene Creed and others. This includes the doctrine of divine processions, which states that the Son is eternally generated by the Father, and the whole and the whole and sorry, and states that the Son is eternally gener generated by the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from either the Father alone or the Father and the Son, as Chris alluded to, depending on where you stand on the filioque. Chris also rules out modalism and partialism as heresies that fall outside of orthodoxy. Considering this, Chris lists seven points of doctrine that must be maintained for orthodoxy. One, the Father is God. Second, the Son is God. Three, the Holy Spirit is God. Four, they share one substance. Five, the Father, Son, and Spirit are not each other. Son and Spirit are logically contingent, although we change to metaphysically contingent on the Father. And seven, the persons are not parts of a divisible substance. The seven premises are somewhat straightforward. I'd simply add that I understand number four is the claim that there is one God. Chris later in his video states two additional debatable criteria, one being that the Son and Spirit are assay and divine simplicity. On the assay of the Son, I believe that Chris misunderstood my position. I am asserting, as he is today, that an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity asserts that the Son and the Spirit are not assay. Also, this premise would be in conflict with number six, i.e. the Son and the Spirit being logically contingent upon the Father. One cannot be logically contingent upon something other than oneself and at the same time be assay. To be assay means to have existence in and of oneself as opposed to through or dependent upon another. I do not believe that the doctrine of the Trinity, by the way, is compatible with divine simplicity either, but unless Chris wishes to strongly defend this notion, I will simply leave it at that. Definitely. Uh, definitely consistent with divine simplicity, but uh, we'll, that, that is a whole can of worms that I ain't opening up. But uh, let's, again, talk about uh, whether the Son and Spirit are Asse, because that is something that Jake will frequently bring up. And I understand it, um, why he would bring that up, because in order to have a reasonable view of God, 
you need God to be our say. You need to be God, God to be of himself. You can't have um, God be dependent upon another. So, how are we to think of aseity when it comes to the Son, who is called God of God? Because that would seem to say, well, he's not ase because he's of God. He's God of God. But we would distinguish. So, again, as a frequently made, we would distinguish qua essentia and qua persona, according to person, according to essence. So, again, think of, think of our triangle. If uh, let, let's see if I can spell triangle this time because I did should you oh, I, I misspelled triangle again I was thinking I was thinking about how not to that that I would not um just try ang angrily that's how I spelled it this time gosh I don't know why you guys listen to me okay so remember our triangle when it comes to the way in which we think about the relation of the essence in persons. Boom. The father would be at that angle right there. And notice, this is this is a very analogous concept. So I think we're pretty safe from people thinking that a, a triangle is actually um, univocally speaking of God. So father, that angle right there. The angle right there, father. Now, the inside, we would say analogously, would be the being, substance, essence, nature, whichever one we want to use. So, the angle gives being to the other angles. Boom. Nature is not added on. So, that is the, the way in which we can conceive of something being... Qua persona, um, not ase, but qua sentia ase. I'm going to share the intro again. That's partialism, Patrick. I I hate that. I hate that video. I am one of these times. I'm gonna I'm gonna review that video, and I'm gonna show how each one of those analogies can be used in an orthodox sense. I hate that video from Lutheran satire. It's literally dry angle. It, I, bro, I just don't know how to spell stuff. I'm sorry. Given Chris's seven criteria and his wish to affirm the early ecumenical creeds, I, think, I can think of one important point that seems to be missing from Chris's criteria. I'd like to add that an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity must cohere with Scripture, and if it fails to do so, it cannot be considered orthodox. I believe that Chris will agree with this as well. All that said, let us now turn to the distinctive features of Chris's model of the Trinity to determine whether it meets the standards of logical coherence and orthodoxy or not. I will now present four main arguments against Chris's model of the Trinity. My first argument centers around Bates' construal of the persons as abstract particulars, although it assumes that he's dropped this language, so we'll see how this goes. One of the key features of Chris's model is that the persons are defined as abstract particulars, and the being of God is concrete. When you send a dude your model for the Trinity like a month ago to critique and then you change your mind within that month, bro, what what are you doing? What are you doing, Chris? What are you doing? You don't think that we haven't thought about 
the Trinity for like two millennium it, millennia, and all of a sudden, Chris Date's gonna come around, and he's just gonna find out the greatest model known to man, and he's gonna change it every month. Stupid. One of the key features of Chris's model is that the persons are defined as abstract particulars, and the being of God is concrete. He states that the persons subsist in the being of God and compares the persons to properties, although he maintained that, such as hardness or redness, etc. Chris states that they must be construed as abstract tropes because if they were universals, then they would be identical to each other. The first problem with Chris's model is identifying the persons of the Trinity as abstract properties. This is because things that are abstract typically do not stand in causal relations. For example, the number one cannot cause anything. However, the persons of the Trinity do stand in causal relations. They perform actions all throughout the Bible, so they do not seem like the sort of things that would qualify as being abstract. At this point, Chris seems to have turned orthodoxy on its head by making the persons abstract and the being or essence concrete. Orthodoxy typically conceives of it the other way around. In order to evade this criticism, Chris must clarify his understanding of the term abstract and how something abstract can be said to be the creator of all that exists when things like the number one and hardness don't qualify as such. My second argument relies on Chris's confusion about aseity. At the 35 minute and 30 minute mark of his uh, 30 second mark of his video, Chris states that the persons have no being independent of the concrete substance. This is problematic for the claim that the father possesses the attribute of aseity, which is part of the package of orthodoxy. This is because on Chris's model, the father is an abstract particular, which is dependent upon that which is concrete. So Chris must explain to us how the existence of the father's existence can be. Oh, wait, Chris State has a whole video on this. Oh, we need to watch this. We need to watch this. This is going to be terrible. Dependent upon something other than himself and yet still be assay. This appears to, appears to be contradictory unless Chris wants to give up the father's aseity, in which case he'd no longer be in the bounds of orthodoxy. Nicene orthodoxy teaches that the father alone is assay and the son and the spirit are not. Chris, again, at the 35 minute and 30 second mark of his video, suggested that even the father is not assay. However, at the one hour, one minute and 30 second mark, he states that the tropes of the son and spirit are dependent upon the trope of the father. Again, at the one hour, six minute and 45 second mark, he states, he states that the attribute of aseity is an attribute of the being of God, but not of any one of the persons of God. Date at point seems to have another problem on his hands in which he has four things which are divine, namely the, the three persons and the being of God. This seems to be the case when he states things like the being of God is Asse. He then states that you can claim simultaneously that the son is contingent upon the father and yet the son is Asse. But the son is Asse, he says, because he subsists in the being of God. It appears Chris is confused at this point. You cannot say that something is contingent and dependent and yet is Asse. So not only is Chris's model contradictory at this point, but it is also unorthodox. Orthodoxy states that a Sadie is a personal attribute of the father and not of the one being, nor of the son, nor of the spirit. But it seems that Chris has slightly changed his position on this. For example, Gregory of Nyssa and Ad Petrum states, and I quote, and God overall has a special property or gunarisma of his own hypostasis or person being the father and subsisting from no cause. And by this sign, again, he is also individually recognized. Notice that the being, uh, notice that being uncaused or assay is a property of the father's hypostasis or person alone, not of the other two persons, nor of the being of God, as Chris argues. Yeah, in Western theology, we would call that an ashability. Because really, when he's talking about assay, talking about the property of uh, begottenness. Oh, sorry, man, I keep hiccuping. Begottenness, and that is shared most supremely by the father. Uh, because not only can there be no sharing in his aseity, but obviously positively assay. And then secondarily, it can also be spoken of um, with the being of God, uh, because um, while it is assay, it can be uh, possessed by persons who are not assay. So that that's the so the father is supremely uh, anashable, if we're going to use that language.
This is also evidenced in the early debates the Orthodox have with the Arians, such as Eunomius. The famous Arian heretic Eunomius asserted that the being or essence of God is identified with the Sadie. St. Gregory argued that the essence of God is fundamentally unknowable and instead argued that each of the persons possess the same being or essence, but the Father is Asse and the Son and the Spirit are not in virtue of the divine processions. This means that Aseity is a personal property of the Father, not the shared being. So Chris needs to first explain how his statements are coherent and secondly, how they are orthodox. Now, whatever route Chris chooses to take, I will argue that the orthodox position that the Father alone is Asse and the Son and the Spirit are not is problematic. If a seity is a necessary attribute of God and the Son and the Spirit fail to possess it, then would it render the Son and the Spirit less than God and certainly less than the Father? So Chris must explain to us how they can lack a seity and still be God. My third argument is that Chris's model seems to be unorthodox as his one self portrayal is inconsistent with the New Testament. Chris may deny this, but it appears he is representing what Dale Tuggy calls a one self Trinitarian view. And I think his presentation today has actually made that quite clear. This means that there is just one self in the Trinity as opposed to three selves. One reason to think that Chris's model is best understood as a one self theory is he, because he draws an analogy as he's done today between the self as subject or I and the self as object or me. He also shows a video game in which there is an individual with multiple camera angles or points of view. This seems to amount to a single self with different points of view or modes of being. Date's model fails to be robust enough to capture the interpersonal relationship of the Father and the Son in the New Testament. At minimum, it appears we have two selves, leaving the Spirit aside for simplicity's sake. For example, take the baptism scene in which the Father calls from heaven, saying, You are my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Also in John 17, 3, when the Son speaking to the Father states, This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The Father and Son stand in an I-thou relationship in the New Testament, not an I-me relationship. Now, based on Chris's further explanations in his opening statement, I want to point out an additional problem, which is the problem of indexicals. And that is referential statements that include the term I. For example, I know that I am Jake Brancatella or the Muslim metaphysician. Well, if the Father believes that I am the Father and the Son believes that I am not the Father, how can a single mind, which Chris is propagating, believe two contradictory beliefs? Maybe I'll speak about that further. So Chris must explain how his model is not a oneself theory, and the son believes that I am Jake Brancatella or the Muslim metaphysician. Well, if the father believes that I am the father and the son believes that I am not the father, how can a single mind, which Chris is propagating, believe two contradictory beliefs? Maybe I'll speak about that further. So, okay. So this is actually this is actually an uh, interesting question. I haven't really thought about this before, but I'll I'll take a stab at it. So when it comes to God. Uh, obviously, intellect and will are the property of the nature of the technically nature, yes, of the nature and not of the individual persons, because we would say there's one will, one intellect in God. But uh, when it comes to what a person is as a subsisting subject of a rational nature, there would be three subjects in God. So what what Jake says um, about the he's he's assuming uh, some interesting sort of um, social trinitarianism when he's describing the orthodox view. Because I don't think the mind of God would ever say um, would ever think I am the the Father and I am not the the Son. I, I don't I don't think that's a that 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 would be like saying like my mind's thinking about this is extremely analogous language and you have to make a lot of negations on this one but I'm just illustrating the fact that um, things can be true and untrue in different respects so that would be like my mind saying like I am my hand and I'm not my foot 
that'd be that'd be a really weird thing for 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 my mind to think but what jake seems to be assuming is there's also a kind of a misunderstanding of the incarnation because with the incarnation the sunset takes on a second mind because again intellect is a property of nature and since the sun takes on a second nature you have um, a two-minded jesus so uh, that that is that is a way of a lot of these things like the prayer, like uh, God wouldn't pray. Uh, St. Thomas is very clear about this when it comes to interpreting that text about Jesus praying to the father is that God does not pray to himself for some weirdness like that, because uh, obviously there's one intellect and one will. But that would be uh, Christ's uh, praying according to his humanity um, to to the father. Okay, so yeah, that that's interesting, interesting thought, but uh, that is how. Okay, what is? God is beyond being. No analogy will do. Well, all of our language about God is analogous. And that's kind of the whole point of an analogy is that you have to make certain negations in order to negate the imperfections which are present in it. Chris must explain how his model is not a one-self model and is perhaps better understood as a three-self model or how one-self model is orthodox and being consistent with the New Testament. My fourth and final argument is the logical problem of the Trinity, which centers around how statements like the Father is God are understood. Does Dates model avoid the age-old tritheism objection? When Chris states, when Chris says that the Father is God, he does not take it to be an is of identity, but rather an is of predication, although I don't know about that as of now. This is because he recognizes that if the Father is identical to God and the Son is identical to God, then it follows that the Father is identical to the Son, which would be the heresy of modalism, which he has already ruled out. However, if each of the persons are fully God and not identical to each other, then how does Date secure monotheism? If Date says that the one God is the being and not any one of the persons, then his model wouldn't be orthodox, as orthodoxy states that each of the persons is fully God. So if each of the persons are not parts of the one being, and they are each fully God... Okay, we've already went over the logical problem, the Trinity. ...and not each other, then it seems that Date has failed to avoid tritheism. Remember, the whole, the whole thing is... Okay, is it a predication or identity? Um, it would be... Uh, of identity, but let's go down the predication route. Yep, it'd either be tritheism or partialism. Wah, wah. Okay, let's go over the identity model. Whoop. Modalism or incoherence? No, because by identity, we are still recognizing that there's a minor virtual distinction between the subject and then the predicate of um, subject and predicate of that statement, the Father is God. So, there you go. And I think I'll leave it off there, actually. We've been going for, I said, an hour and 15 minutes. So thank you all for staying. And it is Easter, and Christ is risen from the dead. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.